a couple of young ladies this morning that have a story to tell you. And while we're in this environment, I want Tessa to come up and tell her story. So welcome Tessa, please. Morning, everyone. So I've been here at New Song for almost eight years. And a couple weeks ago, I had my 10-year anniversary of moving to LeGrand. And now 10 years ago, I was living up in Washington State with my mom, and I had just finished my associate's degree online, and I was raising my two-year-old daughter alone. And I was really, really isolated because I couldn't leave my house without fear. I had a protection order against my daughter's father, and so I didn't have friends, and I was cut off from my family, and it wasn't a good situation. And I didn't know what steps to take next in life. And so I asked God, God, what do I do? Where do I go? And this clear as day voice said, you're going to move to La Grande, Oregon. You're going to apply to the school there. And you're going to get in, and I'm going to provide everything you need. And so it was random enough that I obeyed. And I applied to the school, and I got in. And God did provide everything that I needed. And so... It was very God-ordained, and I moved down here with my daughter and spent a couple years going to school. And then in 2012, I met my husband, and we got married, and I spent the next four years, you know, having kids and living the domestic life and going to church, and, you know, every year on the anniversary of moving here, I would thank God for my awesome, predictable life. You know, thank you for moving me here to La Grand God so I could have this super predictable, you know, domestic life. And, and then in 2016, my predictable life came crashing down on my head when my husband was arrested, and he will rightfully be serving the next 30 years in prison. And I became a single mom to my four kids, and the next two years after that got really, really lonely. And Outwardly, I wanted to appear really strong and really full of faith and be an example to my kids, but to do that inside, I had to shut myself down and shut off my emotions and just numb myself out. And so by the time the nine-year anniversary of me moving to LeGrand came around, you know, I was kind of laughing at God, like, God, this was all just a prank, right? I mean, why'd you tell me to move to LeGrand? I mean, look what's come of it. You know, I got married, and all this happened, and I'm alone, and my kids are growing up without a father, and we're more alone than we've ever been. I mean, what was the point? And by that summer, I felt like the biggest joke of all was my existence, and I felt worthless, and I felt like trash, and I wanted to die, and I thought about it all the time, and it was consuming me, and... I knew that I couldn't go on living like that. And so I asked God, God, how can I heal my heart? I want to be there for my kids. <clears throat> and he said, well, you need to fast from everything you're relying on other than me. And I'd never done any kind of fast before. Um, and so starting on October 1st, I gave up things that I'd been seeking comfort in other than God. It was some foods, it was internet and TV, and I opened up my Bible for the first time in, I really can't even tell you how long, and I didn't know where to start, and so 
I figured, hey, I've always wanted to memorize Bible verses, so I'll look for some that mean something to me and speak something to me, and I wrote them down on note cards, and I would just go through them and say them out loud, and, you know, I'd just repeat them throughout the day, and the more of God's word that I read, the more of it I craved, and from there, you know, I found some Christian nonfiction books that just really spoke to me in my season of life and what I was going through and the loneliness. And then praise and worship music became like a soundtrack, and I felt like God was communicating with me through it. And, you know, I can't tell you over the six-week fast, you know, if it was an exact moment, I think it was really more of a gradual process. But it's like at some point, this switch went off, this internal light bulb, and it's like something clicked and something changed in me, and it's like I finally understood. After 32 years, I finally got it, you know? Like, I am fully known and fully loved by God. And all that shame that I had been carrying the weight of from basing, you know, my entire life I've been basing my worth on what people had done to me and what they had said to me, but now it's gone. It's nailed to the cross. And if I need to know my worth and my value, if I need a reminder of that, all I have to do is look at what Jesus did on the cross for me, for you. And you know what? I'm forgiven, and all the people that hurt me, they're forgiven too. And my identity, who I am, is that I am loved by God. And there is nothing that I can do or say, and there is nothing that anyone else can do or say to me that can remove that love that was placed on me, not earned, placed on me at creation that cannot be removed. And now I am finally free, you know, unburdened, unshackled, free to love and be loved without fear. And that's why God moved me here to LeGrand. That's why. And you know what? I declare that all of you too, you will experience divine revelation of how completely intentional consuming, all-encompassing, and unshakable God's love for you is and always was and always will be in the beautiful, powerful, and redeeming name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. All right, the next young lady to speak this morning, she's got a story to tell you, is uh, our daughter Freedom. She's been in Kansas City for six months at uh, International House of Prayer, interning there, and, and she's going to tell you uh, what she did and what the Lord did while she was there. So welcome, Freedom. Good morning. <laughs> so, like Dad said, I've been in Kansas City at the International House of Prayer for the last six months, and that has been an amazing experience. If you ever get a chance, go spend some time in a house of prayer. You'll, at least I did, found out prayer was a lot different than what I thought it was. It's actually a lot of fun, too. I didn't think it was fun before I went. But I do now, because, yeah, it was different than I thought. Um, But what was really special about this house of prayer is that it's centered around, or based off of what they called the spirit of the tabernacle of David, um, because David had, like, 4,000 singers and musicians in the tabernacle. Um, and so what they, they incorporate worship with everything that they do with prayer. So there's always a worship team going, or at least someone um, singing and praying. 
in the prayer room at all times, singing scripture and prayers. And so that actually makes prayer a lot easier. So, But this prayer room has existed for 20 years. Um, they've been going night and day for 20 years. And so our job as interns coming in just for six months was just to support the prayer room. We did lots of other things we served. We had class during the day, but our main thing was to support the prayer room. And our shift was from six until midnight, um, almost every night of the week. And so we were in there for six hours a night, and that's what we did. And I'm going to tell you a story about what God did through that. So when I got there, I had a lot of things to relearn and some things to unlearn. Uh, Actually, reading through the whole Bible for the first time really shook my view of God. (laughs) Uh, I came to realize I really didn't know who God was and that he was a lot different than I had always imagined. (laughs) By the middle of my internship in, like, October, a lot of things had accumulated in my own life and in my own heart, and it was really causing me to question whether I thought God was actually good because he wasn't what I imagined him like, and I wasn't sure if he was good. Um, One of the biggest things that was contributing to my doubt and questioning was that my closest friend and my roommate there was struggling with depression and bipolar disorder, and she'd struggled with that for years, and it was really hard to watch that. And um, it actually got so bad um, for her that she had to leave in the middle of our track really suddenly she was there one day and that night she packed up and she was gone the next morning and that was really hard and ironically that was the week that we were reading Job for our side reading (laughs) and that was kind of what um shook my view of God so I remember reading the book and just coming before the Lord in the prayer room with just so many questions and even accusations God how can you be good like in in Job you took you took all the credit for completely destroying the life of your most faithful servant. And, I mean, by the end of the book, sure, like, you restore everything double, but who cares that you gave him, like, a, twice as many sheep and goats and camels? Like, who cares? You killed his children. Like, how is that okay or justifiable or good in any way? And then going back to Hallie and like my own experience how can a good father be letting such a faithful and loving person as Hallie be going through what she's going through and what she's gone through all of her life and so I kind of came to a place where I really didn't like God (laughs) probably shouldn't say that in church but (laughs) he didn't really fit into the nice neat little theological box that I'd always thought he fit in and I wasn't really sure if he was good at all because I didn't understand why he did what he did, or in essence, really who he was. So I was sitting in my chair in the prayer room with a lot of questions and accusations, and I was just crying, and the Holy Spirit brought to mind this picture of Jesus, and Jesus was just before me, and he was on the cross, and it was a nasty picture. He was bloody and bruised and torn flesh and so much pain and so much blood, But in that moment, it was just so comforting, actually, because the Holy Spirit just brought so much comfort that Jesus had, he'd felt my pain, he'd carried Hallie's pain, and it was just really comforting to know that in that moment. Um, So for several minutes, I just had the image of Jesus in front of me on the cross, and it was like, it was like the Father was 
was with me, and we were watching him die together. Like, that's what it was. Like, the father was right here. After a while, I just got hit with something that the father said. It, he said it so tenderly, but it hit me so hard. We're watching his son die, and he's bleeding for me and my filthy sin. And the father says, this is what I call good. And I just <laughs> about couldn't breathe for a little bit. Because we're watching his son who'd taken on the pain and the sin, my filthy sin. And the father was thinking about how he'd planned it to save me. And the death and the pain of his beloved and perfect son is what was good in his eyes. <laughs> like, okay, God, I still don't understand you at all. But if that's what you call good, I can trust that. Because that's way better than my definition of good. Way better, way higher. I just, yeah, the, and the fact that he just came down and all of my accusation and my questions and gave me that was just, okay, I can trust, I can trust you because that is more amazing than anything I had ever imagined. <laughs> so that was Saturday night, and Sunday we were told that Hallie was coming back, and that was a crazy story in and of itself, how God brought her back and um, did crazy things in her life. But anyways, she did really good for a couple weeks, and then one morning she woke up, and I could tell that just the opposite swing of the bipolar was back, and she was acting um, exactly like she did right before she left. And I got really upset and a little bit frightened. I wasn't upset at her or really upset with God this time, but I kind of felt like I got this righteous anger, (laughs) sort of. But I knew where to take it. I went to the prayer room. I prayed like I never prayed before. I really didn't say much at all. It was mostly tears. Um, And when I did pray, it was just, I just mostly reminded God how much he loved her. I said, God, you love Hallie. You love Hallie so much, and you did not create her to live under the bondage that she's having to live under. And I just reminded him of that, and I cried. (laughs) So at 6, all the rest of the interns came in like usual. And at 9 o'clock, I was, Hallie was sitting in the chair right in front of me, and I was still praying for her. I had my eyes closed. It had been several hours at this point, but I had my eyes closed, and this light came through my left eye. I didn't see it in my right eye, so it, like, came through my left eye, and I opened my eyes, and it it wasn't there because it was just in my mind. But I opened my eyes, and I was like, if that light is real, it hit Hallie in the back of the head. And I got, like, super excited. (laughs) I was like, the light is coming! The light is coming! Quietly, but (laughs) I got, like, super excited. And it was a matter of minutes, and Hallie, like, lifted her head, and she started singing, and she raised her hand, and it was a 100% different person than she was a couple minutes before. And I was just floored, and I was so excited. I was like, Hallie's back! Because this would sometimes last for days, maybe even more than a week. Um, that she'd just be under this. But later we were talking about it, and she was like, yeah, something changed this time in the prayer room. And I was like, yep, I know it did. (laughs) Because afterwards she could look me in the eye, she could smile at me, which she couldn't do before. So that was just absolutely amazing to see the power of God um, just come in an instant and lift all that darkness that was there. So thank you guys for all of you who covered me in prayer while I was there. It was an amazing experience, and... God did a lot in my heart, and it was really awesome. Thank you for letting me share this morning. Hebrews 12, 2. 
says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The road to the throne of God crosses the top of Calvary. You cannot get to the throne of God without going across that hill. We're three weeks in on a series of spiritual authority, and I want you to see how Jesus arrived at the throne of God. The throne of God is the foundation of all authority in the entire universe. The fact that Jesus is seated there is why he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. How did he arrive where he has the authority of the throne of God? It's because he endured the cross. Do you see it? There. As I speak to you this morning, don't lose track of what Tessa said to you and what Freedom said to you. It directly relates. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. There you go. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 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 Do you see the therefore? Do you see what it's there for? Because he was obedient to death on the cross, therefore... God gave him authority, the highest authority, because when he looks at his bloody son, he says, that is good. In fact, that is the best. That is the best, the perfect man. Obedient suffering equals promotion in the kingdom of heaven. Obedient suffering is how Jesus arrived at his spiritual authority. So, suffering in this earthly physical world equals spiritual authority. Luke chapter 24. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 1 Peter 1.11. The Spirit testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. We have to suffer to get to the glory of God. There are no uh, side paths. There are no shortcuts. There is no other road. We have to go through Calvary to get to the glorious throne of God. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. It was necessary so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. How did he get the authority of being high priest? He died. He became flesh and blood and suffered in the flesh. And we just saw in Philippians, we must have the same mindset as Christ. Romans eight, seventeen. 
It says, if we are God's children, we will receive blessings from God together with Christ. But we must suffer as Christ suffered so that we will have glory as Christ has glory. It's inescapable. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to take up our cross. But taking up our cross is the way to spiritual authority. It is the way to the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the way to life and salvation. When Paul is met on the road to Damascus and he is blinded, there's a a man, a prophet, that God tells him, I want you to go and pray for Saul and his eyes will be opened. And this man knows that Saul is murdering Christians. And so he debates God on whether he should go see Paul, or who's Saul still at this point. And God tells him this in Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul had the distinction and the honor of being God's chosen vessel. You want to be God's chosen vessel? You want to be picked to be an authority in his kingdom? I will show him what he must suffer. Is the first thing God says. And so then we get to, it's not on the screen, but 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, there are four chapters where the Corinthian church is in full-on rebellion against Paul, and they are following false teachers. And Paul says, look here, church, I am your spiritual father. I'm the one that brought you to Christ. I have authority over you. And what does he say he has authority? Why does he say he has authority? He's not saying... He does say, I'm the only one teaching you right. They're all leading you off. But he says, I have authority over you because I've suffered for you. I've been shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and put in prison. And he lists this list of all the things he has suffered to prove that he has authority in the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, if you want to go read that. Paul says, my authority over you comes because I have paid a price for your souls. So your suffering, whatever price you have paid to obey Jesus, is your spiritual authority. Because it's what you know. I mean, you know it. Because you live through it. Because what you have suffered through, what troubles you have faced, that's what you know. That's what you're an expert in. You've lived through whatever you've lived through, a battle with cancer or divorce or the loss of a child or abuse, or whatever it is, you've lived through that and you have seen God on the other side of it, you have authority to testify to God's faithfulness in that suffering. You have authority to pray for other people, to minister to them, to speak with authority. If you've never done a 40-day fast, you can't tell somebody they should do a 40-day fast. If you haven't lost a spouse or a child, you may feel sorry and you may love someone and feel sympathy for them, but you can't minister to them in the way that somebody else who's been in the same situation. What you have lived through is your authority. That's the area where you can most offer the word and spirit of God. Your suffering qualifies you for promotion in the kingdom of heaven just as it did for Jesus because in the area where you have paid a price is where you have found victory and it's what you know and it's what you can help somebody else through. Romans 8, 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There it is. Now, I'm not talking about our everyday problems of life like flat tires and having a bad day. Because everybody in the world goes through those kinds of troubles and they don't have spiritual authority. I'm not talking about everyday problems and frustrations. Uh, Everybody suffers life's troubles. I'm talking about the problems and troubles and suffering that we endure with faith. The ones where we live with patience and love and forgiveness. Okay, So I'm not talking about everyday life frustrations that everybody has. And I'm not talking about your troubles that are the results of your own bad decisions. I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you're stupid. You should have kept your mouth shut. (laughs) Uh No, I'm talking about the suffering that you have because of your obedience for Jesus. Being rejected, accused, lonely, misunderstood, doing without food or doing without money that you gave up, sacrifices of time and energy to serve or pray, the pain of loving and forgiving difficult people, spiritual or emotional battles that you face to remain faithful to Jesus. That's the suffering that qualifies you for promotion in the kingdom of heaven. The good fight of faith is what the Bible calls it. Yeah? So I'm not talking about everyday life troubles. I'm talking about the troubles that you overcome with faith. Look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, 26. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. There it is. You overcome, you get authority. 3.11, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. A crown is authority. 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, when you live through your troubles and suffering with faith and love and forgiveness, I will seat you on my throne. That's authority. That's promotion. That's reward. Don't trip over the word overcome. It doesn't mean that you win in every circumstance. In fact, most real faith is losing, giving up our lives. Paul had lost his head, and that was victory. Paul's list of his terrible troubles is his list of overcoming. Not that uh, every time it went the way it was supposed to go. Don't trip over the word overcoming. It's not to win in an earthly sense. It means to keep your faith. To keep obeying and to keep your heart soft. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Why does God promote people who suffer through troubles with a soft heart? With a faithful heart? It's because suffering in faith produces compassion. And compassion is where the power of God flows. All right, he, Back to Hebrews 2, we read this the first part of this just a moment ago. He is our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Since he lived through it, he is able to be merciful to us. We can't have really, truly, we cannot have compassion or empathy for someone whose troubles we haven't gone through ourselves. 
Well, we could, if somebody loses a child, we can all be heartbroken and feel sorry for them, but only somebody who's been through that before really, truly knows what that's like. Or any other experience. You lose a spouse or your spouse goes to jail or any number of issues facing serious disease. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus had to know what it feels like to suffer, to be tempted to sin, because the Bible says God cannot be tempted to sin. He had to become a man so he knows what it feels like so that he can have compassion on us. Because compassion is where the power of God comes from. So God can only entrust it to people who are compassionate. Look at this, Matthew chapter 9. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. There's so many verses that mention the compassion of Jesus in the context of him doing a miracle that I cannot read them all to you this morning. I just picked out four or five. And here they are. Matthew 20. Two blind men sitting by the road, when he heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, Lord, Son of David. The multitude warned them they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more. So Jesus stood and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. When Jesus did a miracle, he didn't do it to draw attention or even just to do a miracle. It was out of love for the person he was healing. Compassion for another person gives you authority with God to release the power of the Holy Spirit into the situation that you're praying about. The spiritual authority that Jesus carried was never for himself to benefit, but to serve and bring life and salvation and healing and freedom to somebody else, everybody else. God will not release his power upon a selfish prayer, but he will gladly back up your prayer request when you are honestly compassionate towards somebody else. Mark chapter 1. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleaned. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Mark chapter 5 is where Jesus sets free the man who is the legion of demons in him. And he's naked and living in a graveyard and chained up and nobody can, he keeps breaking the handcuffs and he is a madman. And Jesus sets him free and the man in this, where we come in the passage, the man is asking to go with Jesus and be one of his disciples. When he got in the boat, he who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Even Jesus' authority over demons, Jesus did not come with a rod and beat the demon out of somebody because I've got authority, I'm in charge. He loved the man. And the compassion of God set the man free. Luke chapter 7, now it happened that the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd and when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. 
Jesus, moved with compassion for a widow who's lost her only son, brings even life from the dead out of compassion. Notice he isn't, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, but he isn't doing this in some sort of bossy ordering around the spirits and commanding this and that to happen. He is moved by love. He's moved by compassionate empathy. Jesus never did a miracle just to do a miracle or to put on a show or to have an exciting meeting. He did it out of love for the people that he met. He had compassion for them on whatever situation that they were in. A widow that's lost her son, a leper, a demon-possessed madman. Both of the times that Jesus multiplies food for the 4,000 and the 5,000, it says he had compassion on the crowd. His compassion even that they're hungry. They'd live if they had to walk home overnight with an empty stomach. But he loves us. His compassion and the compassion of God creates the miracle. Talking to you about spiritual authority. Talking to you about being spiritual people. It comes from compassion. A heart of love for people because compassion for others is authority to ask God. And when we ask in real love for somebody else to be freed or saved or delivered or healed, power happens. If we're just seeking power or authority or a miracle show or a revival for revival's sake, it won't happen. If we seek anything other than the love of God, we've missed the mark. But when we seek the love of God for the person in front of us, God answers our prayers for that person. You'll notice in any of these stories, Jesus doesn't call a meeting and have a bunch of worship and get everybody jumping around and clapping, all right, now form a ministry line and we'll see what happens. No, he just loves them and the power flows. He doesn't have to drum up excitement. I love you and that's enough. God will be here. Because suffering produces compassion. We learn things in our own troubles that we don't learn any, any other way. Our successes generally lead us to pride. And our failures and suffering lead us to compassion. Because what we don't want toward other people is pity or judgment. Pity is the satanic counterfeit of compassion. Pitying people just keeps them in their problem. We feel sorry for them, but don't really know what to do, or maybe we'll pass out a little welfare, but it keeps them in their problem. And judgment is the opposite of compassion. Judgment is, well, I know why you have this problem, and I know how you need to fix it. And it isn't compassionate. Judgment keeps people in their problems. Suffering in faith will make you truly compassionate because you will identify. Interacting with people should provoke compassion in us always. If you're prone to anger, if you're often annoyed or disgusted with people, you have not yet suffered enough. If you jump to conclusions, if you judge that you know why people are wrong and what their problem is and what they need to do, you have not yet suffered enough. Compassion, which is selfless love for another, is the authority of the kingdom of God. It is the authority that Jesus gave us to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to be compassionate, to be moved in spiritual power, in compassion, and set people free. That's what this means, to live in Holy Spirit compassion for every person that we meet. So, our suffering promotes us, gives us authority in the kingdom of God because God can trust somebody who has not just been through trouble but responded with faith and forgiveness. And that produces compassion 
And compassion is where the power of God flows from. God doesn't do any miracle just to have a miracle. He does it in love for the person that needs the miracle. So when we line up with that in compassion, there are seriously eight or ten more verses I could show you where Jesus did a miracle in compassion. We just don't have time to read them all. When we line up in compassion, because we understand what it's like to hurt or be lonely or depressed or to live through a divorce or the loss of a child or cancer or whatever the case may be, then we have authority in that area. And we can speak to it. And we can minister. So compassion is where the power of God flows. John 11 Lazarus has died and Jesus has arrived three days later. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loves him. Do you see Jesus' compassion for Mary and Lazarus. Do you see the love in his heart for his friends? Do you see the power of the Holy Spirit ramping up here for what's about to happen? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And he said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that you would, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. In this story, the word compassion is not used, but it's certainly there. There's an authority that's even higher than us caring about someone is the authority of tears. When we are moved to tears for someone else's pain, God is moved. There is compassion that moves you to tears and that moves the heart of God to hear your prayer. Mary's tears moved Jesus's heart and Jesus's tears released the power of God. It's a powerful story because it shows Jesus's vulnerability and his humanness and his pain. It's a very intimate thing. He's, he never cries for anybody else. There is authority in our tears that God is moved powerfully, especially when we are moved to tears in love for someone else, for their salvation or their healing. But there's more than tears going on here. You notice the word groaning twice. It says Jesus groaning within himself. That word in the Greek can be translated and is in various translations lots of different ways. It is a strong word. It can be translated to call out, to shout, to scream, to wail, and to shriek. It is a very strong word, what is going on in Jesus' heart. 
it is the same word that when it says the demons came out with a loud noise. It's the same word. This is what's going on in Jesus' heart in front of the door to Lazarus' tomb is the same noise that demons make when they come out. That's a shriek. It is the same word that it says in the Gospels, Jesus on the cross cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He screamed. He wailed. He shrieked. In both of those examples, it is the sound of a spirit leaving a body. It's a spiritual sound of tearing. The spirit, soul, and body tearing apart. It is literally the sound of a broken heart. Jesus is coming apart inside in pain. Maybe some of you, maybe someone you've been with, you've heard them cry past the point of tears. And all there is is noise. It's moaning. It's wailing. It's sometimes pretty terrible. This is what's going on in Jesus. His heart is breaking. It's his inner being coming apart. There is a sound of a broken heart. And this is what's going on with Jesus in his compassion for Mary and Martha. And it says in this story, unlike on the cross where he vocalizes it, John makes it very clear that it's doing it inside, but somehow John perceived it. I don't know how it was perceived, but Jesus, on his way, he sees Mary, and it makes him groan. But I don't think the word groan is nearly strong enough. He's seeing Mary's pain rips his spirit. And it's the same Jesus with you. It pulls him apart. And then he tells Martha, have faith and you'll see the power of God. But even still, on the way to the tomb, it's still happening. Even though he knows resurrection is about to happen. It is Mary's pain and the loss of Lazarus is breaking his heart. And then he says the weirdest prayer in scripture. I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. He hasn't said anything yet. What did God hear? He heard his groan. God heard Jesus' breaking heart, and that was the prayer that brought Lazarus out of the grave. There is spiritual authority in your broken heart. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you heard me. And he hasn't prayed anything. And then he says, for the rest of what he says, I'm saying it so that they'll know what's going on. I don't need to pray anything else. You heard what happened. And I know you're going to fix it. You're going to bring life back from the dead. Your broken heart moves Jesus. It literally breaks his heart. It rends his spirit to see you in pain. And the sound of your broken heart is a real spiritual sound. I don't know if you have felt your heart crack before. 
I see a lot of tears and nodding. I know we know what we're talking about. You have felt your heart crack. God heard that. You have experienced a breaking inside your innermost being. That made a sound that God heard. And it tears his heart. God heard that as a prayer. And it deeply moved him. And he is already at that point moving to bring resurrection. And when your heart breaks for someone else like Jesus' did for Mary and Lazarus, that is also a prayer that God hears. There is the authority, not just of our own suffering or our own compassionate love for somebody else, not even the fact that we have cried tears for people we love to be saved or healed or our own marriages or whatever it is, but when our heart is broken for someone else, that is high authority with God I hear that sound. And that moves me. You can pray with the authority of a broken heart. And God is deeply and powerfully moved. There's something even more. God gives us promotion and authority because of what we suffer through in faith. And that produces a compassion which releases more authority and power upon our lives to bring salvation and healing and revival. The highest compassion is the authority of our tears and our broken heart. There's something even more. John 17, Jesus praying in the garden. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here is Jesus praying in the garden before he is crucified, and he said he's praying this prayer which is by far the most detailed prayer we have of Jesus. It's an entire chapter of him praying for his apostles and for us. And he says, I am praying in the authority that you gave me over all flesh. This is the second most kingly and royal moment in Jesus' life, where he is interceding between God and humanity. And what gives him the authority to do that? He is covered in blood at this point. The authority of blood, when we actually pay with blood to love another person, we have the right to bring eternal life. Jesus said it right there. This is why God told freedom, this is what I call good. Before Pilate, Jesus is standing there and he has a crown of thorns on and a royal robe and the Soldiers have mocked him and beat him and scourged his back open. And we have the king of the universe standing before Pilate. And he is a bloody mess. And Jesus had just prayed, Father, glorify your son. And that's how God glorified him. He ripped his skin open. 
and the blood flowed. Pilate said, are you the king? And he said, yes, I am, as you say. This is the most royal moment in Jesus' life. From God's point of view, this is the man. This is the Savior. This is the perfect one. This is the one I choose. And the most kingly thing Jesus ever did, as he is hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. This is the most royal and authoritative and kingly thing Jesus ever did was to forgive humanity because we didn't know what we were doing. It's Jesus being the King of Kings. The authority of the blood that he poured out in those moments is eternal. That's why he is seated on the throne. That's why he is the name above every name. That's why he is the king of kings. It's why we bow. And it's why we have any hope and any authority and any power in our lives at all. As freedom said, God looked at him and said, that is good. That's what I like. That's what I love. When you love and forgive someone who is causing you true pain, especially while it is happening, you are at your most royal, your most beautiful, your most authoritative, your most godly. Your prayers are the most powerful when you are compassionately serving and even lovingly suffering for another's eternal good. I know it's not likely that very many of us have actually shed blood in the obedience of God. And Peter says that. Quit your complaining, you're not bleeding yet. He said, when you do, you are done with sin. The one who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. It'll grow you up real quick. You mature in God real fast. When you have paid a physical price to obey Jesus. I know it's not likely that many of us have shed blood, but I know that many of you are in problems that are somebody has caused you real pain. When you pray for them and forgive them, even in that moment, you are your most royal. You have authority because of what you have suffered through, not your everyday troubles, but because of what you have, how you have responded with faith and forgiveness and love and overcoming that Suffering produces compassion in you. And compassion is the heart that God can trust. I can give that person some anointing. I can give that person the release of the Spirit. When you have so much compassion that you are crying because of your love and even your broken heart for people that you love and care about to be saved or healed or their marriage to be saved, God hears that prayer. There is great authority in your tears. And in your, even in your broken heart, your broken heart moves God very deeply. And when we pay a real, painful, bloody even price to save and love and forgive other people while they are hurting us, you have truly become a son or daughter of God. Amen. Lord, I bless everybody here. 
Lord, you know what's in our hearts. You know the troubles that we face. You know where we have been and what we've walked through. You've known every moment of it. You've heard the sound of our breaking hearts. Thank you telling us that that moves you deeply and it breaks your own heart. Your own spirit is rent because of our tears. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you. Compassion on our sin and our physical ailments and pain and our family situations and the troubles in our relationships and you know every detail. You know more than we know you know. Thank you for your compassion. Lord, we want to be your sons and daughters who live in your compassion, who release the power of your Holy Spirit to bring resurrection and healing and salvation and freedom and deliverance. So we commit to be people who will live in your compassion, not in fleshly pity or sympathy, but Holy Spirit compassion. Thank you, Jesus, for the testimony of your goodness in Tessa's life. Thank you for the restoration that you gave in her, for the hope and joy and identity, the boldness and peace that you've put in her. Thank you for what you showed freedom. Lord, thank you for the price that Jesus paid. Thank you that you consider the suffering of your son good because it sets us free. Lord, may you give us the same mindset. We would know who you are and how you are good and what you call good so that we can be your sons and daughters and live in the authority of your kingdom, the power of your name, Jesus. Bless everyone here with healing for their broken hearts, peace and forgiveness and joy and life where there's been brokenness, wholeness, where things have been cracked. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your compassion.